Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Donald McIntyre, and this is Click for Murder, the companion podcast to CBS Reality's new television series. Now, throughout this series, we're revealing some of the most disturbing crimes of recent history, where the internet has been used as a tool to trick, torture, and to kill innocent victims lured into a virtual world where nothing is quite what it seems. On today's episode, we're looking at the case of murderer Tony Bushby. 19-year-old Bushby weaved a web of lies on social media to ensnare fellow student Katie Briscoe. Katie believed what she read about him online, but he repaid her trust by stabbing her to death in a frenzied attack. But why did Bushby mislead and then murder the girl he spent so long trying to win over as his girlfriend? Joining me to discuss the Tony Bushby case are Dr Elizabeth Yardley, the Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Hi. And forensic clinical psychologist Mike Berry. Welcome. Thank you. Well, let's start by looking at the background of the victim, the tragic victim, Katie Briscoe. She was a popular church-going teenager and also a talented artist. She was someone her mom, Joy, was certainly and rightly very proud of. Katie was a very quiet girl. She was always pleasant, always smiling and happy. If I could describe Katie in one word, I would say she's an angel. Mike, is it fair to say that Katie had come from a very good and solid, loving family and that not only was she a normal teenager, but she was perhaps a bit innocent with it? I get the impression that she came from a very good family that didn't expose her to the world the way that other families expose their kids. I think she was from a religious background, which would have given her some structure in her life. And in many ways, while giving her structure and right and wrong and morality, that would keep her naive about the real world. And the dangers inherent in that. And the dangers inherent with boys, men, relationships, things like that. But like many teenagers, Liz, she spent a great deal of time on social media. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's difficult for us to say often, you know, what is a normal use of social media and what isn't, because it is something that is still quite new. And I think as a society, as criminologists, we're still getting to grips with, with what is, is usual and what is normal for, for social media use among teenagers. And as an academic, you're foraging into that world and it's changing day by day. Did you get the sense that her use of social media was atypical or something to worry about? No, I didn't get the impression that, that anything that she was doing on social media was anything out of the ordinary. She was using it to maintain relationships that she already had with with people in a face-to-face environment. So she was friends with people from school, people from her local community on the platform she was using. In 2010, Katie started a foundation degree in illustration and here she met Tony Bushby. But her fellow student had a very different background to her. Tony was from a broken family. He no longer had any contact with his father. He was described as a bit of a loner, but also as someone who wouldn't hurt a fly. The 
sense that he had no contact with a father figure. We see this as a theme in lots of criminological issues. Is it significant here? Yes, I think what happens, we we talk about single families, but what we should be looking at is the role of father in a son's development. And we know from the 60s and the McCords and people out doing research showed that the absence of a father was much more important than people realised. And if you've got an absent father, you've got trouble. It is one of those factors that we often see, isn't it? When we see young people getting involved in, in crime, in, in deviance, we, we refer to this as father absence, don't we? We see quite a lot of academics talking about this and, and the impact of it. And I think maybe one of the, the key impacts for me would be the lack of seeing a normal relationship between your mother and, and your father would be significant in this particular case. Can I just say, it's not so much having the absent father it's having the absent father model so if the father's not around if there's a grandfather or an uncle or an older brother somebody that can give that kind of fatherly role and, and advice and things like that that's important rather than necessarily having the biological father you need to have a father figure to the outside world is he displaying any anti-social elements or evidence of potential criminality latent criminality liz I don't think so at this point. Um, he's a bit of a loner. Um, he tends to retreat into a bit of a fantasy world. But what teenage lad doesn't do that? So th- there aren't any red flags for me at this point. There's no way you could predict that he was going to be a killer. There's nothing that shouts or suggests anything about him. He hasn't got a long history of violence. He's not using drugs. He's not out of control as far as we can tell at that time of meeting her. Katie and Tony were on similar courses and their paths overlapped daily. And from there it grew into a friendship where they would text each other, you know, pretty regularly and also message each other on Facebook. It seemed the pace of their relationship was blossoming quite quickly and they go on a date early on. Nothing out of the ordinary there, Liz? No, and teenage relationships do tend to happen quite quickly. They can be flashes in the pan, they can be over within the space of a week or a few days. So this isn't something that's unusual to me. And what we need to remember is these two knew one another in a face-to-face environment. They went to college together. It's not like they met on the internet, so they'd met beforehand. But there was one unusual aspect of this which does set this relationship apart. And interestingly, as her mom Joy, explains and points up, Katie didn't tell her friends or family about Tony. I didn't know that Katie had a boyfriend because Katie had never discussed boyfriends. For some unknown reason, I realised now at the time I didn't, that she was keeping secrets for him. And I didn't know why, but I knew that there was a change in her. It appears to be significant that she didn't tell her family about Tony Bushby. Perhaps she detected something of concern in his character and didn't really want to be swerved away from a potential relationship by her family. You might be reading more into it than is necessary. It could simply be it's the first boyfriend in her life that we know of. She's not sure about the relationship. She wants to tread carefully. Plus, a little bit of a secret. And I think she probably quite enjoyed the fact that people didn't know a lot of teenagers enjoy the, the secret element of their relationship. Surely she should have told and would have told her friends if there wasn't something in the background niggling. 
you want to kind of see how it goes as a teenager and telling your parents about a relationship as a teenager is a really big deal and if you you tell them and your friends that you're going out with somebody they are then going to be asking you about that and then if if that comes to an end you're going to feel a bit silly you're going to not want to talk about it so so what a lot of teenagers will do is just keep it under wraps for a while and see what happens does tony does he keep it a secret he he seems to want to keep it a secret and i think much of Katie keeping it quiet later on in the day is due to Tony's influence. Now that, to my mind, is the beginning of some kind of areas of concern. Yes, the the bells start ringing in my head because is he doing the domestic violence scene where he actually separates her from her friends, starts to isolate her, starts to control her and dictates what's happening in the relationship? Do we think at this stage that Tony had other motives at play here? Well, I think what he's trying to achieve at at this point is power. And secrecy gives you a lot of power. It gives you a lot of control. And and if you're able to have somebody essentially lying to their family and their friends, then you've got them exactly where you want them. Are they both mutually attracted to each other? Mike, is Bushby chasing Katie or is it vice versa? I, I suspect she's flattered by the attention. And I suspect he was quite good at giving the attention when he wanted to. If you're grooming somebody, then you're going to say the right things that they want to hear. And that sets up the whole pattern. And I think she was interested in him. You know, he he was a boyfriend. But I don't think that, that she was taking it like as seriously, perhaps, as he was. Like, he was attaching a lot of meaning to this relationship. So he was pursuing Katie, and, and although she liked him and called her the boyfriend, she wasn't in the same obsession category that he clearly was. No, well, she didn't need to be. This is a a kind of psychologically healthy young woman with lots of dreams and ambition. She comes from a a good family, but Tony is is something different altogether. She's not looking at him as the one. And then the story takes a rather unexpected twist. Four friends of Bushby contacted Katie saying they'd heard she was Tony's new girlfriend and could they be Facebook friends? They were two girls, Sin Darwin and Crystal Stangard, unusual names to say the least, and two boys, Shane Pluian and Dan Tress. Katie accepted the request and then engaged in individual conversations with each of them. During these chats, she found out that Sin Darwin was a previous girlfriend, apparently, of Bushby, and Dan Trass revealed that Bushby was a bit of a bad boy. They all said he was fun, friendly and a safe person to go out with. However, none of them actually existed. They were all created, all fantasies, all creations of Tony Bushby himself. Now, this is beginning to take a very strange turn. Isn't it just? Uh, he's, he's created all of these other people. He's developed Facebook profiles for these other people. This takes quite a lot of time, quite an investment of resource on his part to carry this off and to keep it going as well. So the amount of effort he's putting into this really is incredibly concerning. And Mike, each of these personalities have not only different genders, you know, two and two, boy and girl, but different personalities saying different things all with one aim in mind. The one aim in mind is to make him look good in front of her. And that is what he does, and he does it very successfully. This is the internet version of Wingmen in many ways. And he really didn't think that the real him was enough to, mm. to keep Katie interested in. I think this is quite revealing about how he thinks about himself. Are these characters, these fictitious creations, a little part of him? 
I think they are part of his his fantasy life. He wants to have friends. He wants people to say nice things about him. And I don't think that that's something that's happened in the real world. So he's created that using Facebook. These fake profiles, this is the beginning of an extraordinary, deceitful world and pattern. Did he have murder in mind at this stage? I certainly don't see any red flags for murder. I do see red flags for his psychological state and maybe there's some problems here with reality, but certainly not homicide. Liz, there's a clear area of concern which is flagging to me and it's just how easy it is to pretend to be someone else online. Well, it is incredibly easy. You can set up a social media profile in a matter of minutes. You can find a, an image from, from somewhere on the internet and create a, a whole new person. And Katie cannot be in any which way kind of criticised for, for not being suspicious about these newfound friends. It appears to be totally natural and normal. But what a level and sophistication that Bushby brings to these Facebook profiles. Yeah, I think he's very clever the way he's done this. She is likely to believe it. Why shouldn't she believe it? People talk about their exes. They talk about their friends. What a nice guy. He's even got his friends getting in touch with me. It's making him look really good. And then they're saying nice things about him. She's going to believe that. And there's no way you would expect her not to believe it. And I think there's almost an expectation, especially amongst teenagers and young people, that anybody that you meet in your life, whether that's a new friend or a romantic partner, is going to have this social media presence, this social media profile, where their links with others are visible to the rest of us. So he didn't have that in the real world. He had to create it. Well, not only was Tony Bushby using the internet to weave this extraordinary web of lies, he also used it to watch violent porn, which often involved the rape of black women. And moreover, we also know that he would sometimes watch this porn while simultaneously engaging and chatting with Katie via Facebook. This does escalate matters and the potential for danger in here. And of course, Katie was never to know this. The worrying thing is, if he's watching pornography, that's worrying in itself, violent pornography. But when he's actually talking to a person that represents the images that he's actually watching at that moment, it's only a matter of time before one drifts into the other. Is he starting to fantasise about black women and raping them? Is he starting to fantasise about raping Katie, you know, it's that control gone. I think it's important that, that we recognise this for the complexity that, that is there in this case and, and that we don't say cause and effect that watching violent pornography turns you into a violent person if you're an otherwise normal, healthy, regular human being. But mm. people who've got those existing issues are going to perhaps come into some problems, aren't they? Yeah. One of the problems is if you've got violence, then you're going to be violent. And all it does is give you different modalities to work in. So he could have been into football violence. He could have been into any type of violence. Those violent feelings are going to come out. He happens, unfortunately, to be into a very specific sexual porn violence. What does this say of his latent potential to kill? I don't think at this stage we could say that he was going to become a killer. What we can say is there's a high risk or higher than normal risk that he would end up acting out his fantasies and that would be the sexual rape of a woman. Well, just before Christmas 2011, Bushby used one of his Facebook aliases to set up a meeting between Katie and the imaginary ex-girlfriend, Sin. That's spelt C-Y-N. Bushby then arranged the meeting at a nearby woods and also decided to come along. Now, this is 
is really becoming quite convoluted, even just to listen and to study. What is the significance of the meeting place? Why not a pub or cafe? Why an isolated, kind of lonely part of the woods? And I, I went to the scene. I imagine it's to give him some power and some control over the situation. I imagine him actually setting up the meeting with Sin, knowing full well that's never going to happen. And then he was going to come along and say, oh, I've just had a message from her and something's happened, a dog's died or something, so she can't come. And I'm coming here to talk to you. But maybe that's the time when he's starting to fantasise about doing some harm. Was this meeting a, a rehearsal of sorts? Was he teasing out the potential for a killing? Well, it would appear to be a really bizarre thing to do, wouldn't it? But I think what he's doing here, it's, it's an exercise in control, perhaps. Can I get Katie to, to come with me? And I think it is almost to, to maintain that facade of this, this online friendship that he has with his ex-girlfriend. Interestingly, Mike, he used a SIM card from his sister's old phone to message Katie about the meeting, presumably pretending to be Sin, the ex-girlfriend. Does this suggest the fact he's using someone else's phone, someone else's SIM card, that he was beginning to develop a malevolent motivation? At one level, he's just playing a very simple game of being sensible by not being tracked uh, as sending the message. But at another level, you start to think, well, is he setting this up so he's protecting himself for later events? I'd be really interested to find out, did he have a, a weapon with him? But you've got to remember, he's, he's kind of out there with her in the woods. There are quite a lot of factors that he's not in control of there. So you don't know who could come along um, that there could be anybody out at, at that time of night. There are so many factors that he's not in control of. And for somebody who to be in control is an incredibly important thing, I don't think that, that he would have planned necessarily to, to harm her that evening. Following this encounter in the woods, Bushby was keen to speak to Katie and they arranged to speak on Boxing Day. Katie was staying at her sister's house in order to babysit her kids. It's worth noting that while babysitting, Katie knew there was a strict rule that she wasn't allowed to bring anyone into the house. Bushby called Katie twice, but she didn't pick up. Eventually, on the third time of asking, she answered his call just after eight o'clock and they spoke for 23 minutes. He seems very insistent here, Liz. There is an escalation, there's a, a driving force here, a kind of energy which we haven't seen before. Yeah, and I, I think what's what's going on here is that, that he's trying to, to figure out, are there any adults in the house? Is she going to be alone? And he does appear to be moving towards maybe making that fantasy of a violent rape a reality. After this phone call at 8.13pm, Bushby went home and got a knife and he told his mother he was getting his ID. He then set off towards Katie's sister's house and made one final call to her, apparently, to make sure that she was alone. What's going on here, Liz? I think what he's doing here is that he's, he's planning to bring those, those fantasies that he's been nurturing through watching violent pornography, he's planning to bring those into reality and he wants Katie perhaps to act out a scene from, from one of these rather violent films that he's been watching. So these pornography, these violent porn movies are beginning to really infiltrate into his mind, into his psyche and kind of becoming a, a hugely overpowering concept and theme in, in his uh, thought process. He's clearly driven by his fantasies and of the sexual uh, nature. I think he's going to see KT to add out some of them. The knife would be a prop in the fantasy and I don't see it as a weapon at this stage. And he wants to act out this rape scene with her. She's supposed to put up a bit of a fight, but 
give in in the end, and that's a whole fantasy. Well, somehow, despite the no visitor rule, she allows him into the house and she was wearing her old pyjamas and ready for bed with, obviously, the kids she was babysitting. And it seemed to indicate that she wasn't quite expecting him or certainly hadn't planned to invite him into the house. Why do you think she, she let him into the house? I think because Katie was a, a nice, kind person and, and Tony had shown up on the doorstep and, and she, she let him in. I don't think she ever anticipated that he was going to do anything like this. Did she feel that she could control the situation, have him in for five minutes and then kick him out? I think she did feel like she was in, in control of the situation here because we haven't had any reports that he'd been violent towards mm. her before, that he was any kind of threat towards her. Well, it appears she made her way into the kitchen when Bushby then launched a savage attack and stabbed her 23 times. And it seems she went into the kitchen to get a packet of crisps and then he took the knife out that he had carried to the scene and violently killed her. I mean, it's an extraordinary level of violence. And uh, this was all happening while Katie's mom and her sister were phoning her and leaving voicemail messages as caring, you know, siblings and uh, mom would do. I think he's gone along and he's he's tried to bring about this fantasy, he's tried to make it into reality. And she said, no, thanks, not interested in that. And he has got incredibly angry about that because he's felt like he's in control of her up until this point in time. Mike, why do you think the attack was so frenzied? We know that when uh, you kill somebody you know, you tend to overkill. 23 stab wounds is a lot, but it's not by any means unusual. We often get cases of 70, 80, even 100 stab wounds. It shows the intensity of his violence. It shows his frustrations at what he hasn't achieved, and it's over, overkill. This is clearly a premeditated and planned fantasy murder. I don't think he's planned the murder. I think he's, he's planned to, to have, have sex with Katie and to fulfil his fantasy of well, this what's... violent rape. And I think what, what happens with the murder is that, that he goes along, he proposes this to her, she says no. And at this point, he's lost control of her. Right up until this point, he feels that he's completely in control of Katie and that he can get her to do whatever he wants. She's now saying, no, I'm not doing that. So he changes the project from one of seeking to control her from one of seeking to destroy her. The police and the family believe that the phone messages may have scared off Bushby and had he not been disturbed, you know, uh, he may have raped Katie's dead body, mimicking much of the violent porn that he spent a great deal of his time watching. I think the family probably are right in many ways. The phone calls may well have stopped him. Following this gruesome murder, Bushby returned home and loaded up Katie's Facebook page and then watched porn, violent, submissive porn, against black women, with Katie's photo up on the screen at the same time. Now, that paints a very bleak picture of a psychological state. I mean, it is incredibly worrying that he actually did that. Most people, having committed a horrendous murder, would have panicked, would have run away, would be in a real disturbed state. What he wanted to do that night was to achieve his sexual satisfaction, which he wanted to get through orchestrating that rape that he'd, he'd looked at in, in the pornography. Not able to do that, he continues to do it when he gets home. He's, it's almost like he's not 
affected by the murder to the extent that most people would be. But then reality kind of hits home and he begins to try and cover up his digital tracks. He then does internet searches on how to delete a Facebook page. There is an awful lot of ignorance around the digital footprint that we leave behind. So simply searching for how to delete a Facebook page is going to be logged in your search Mm. history. And I think people these days do feel a degree of forensic awareness having having watched crime dramas and reality programmes about about crime and, and its aftermath. But they really don't appreciate, actually, that when you leave a digital trail of crumbs behind, it's very, very difficult to erase it. It's social media, with some help from CCTV, that leads the police to Bushby. And CCTV sees him carrying a black bin bag, presumably of clothes, away from his house. He has become so sort of fixated on this rape fantasy and and making that happen that, that that's all that he's been able to really see. And he's not thinking about the, the trail that I've left behind. Was this murder planned? I don't think it was planned in the sense of him sitting down and this is what I'm going to do. I think he certainly had fantasies and we have clear examples of the fantasies moving into, into the real world. So in the sense he acted out his fantasies rather than act out a planned murder. Bushby was arrested and questioned by police, but initially he denied any knowledge of Katie's murder. But after telling police he didn't even know Katie, he then told officers that Dan Tress, one of his fictional Facebook friends, was the real murderer. Was this a convenient lie or just a genuine blurring of his reality and fantasy? Well, it's difficult to say, isn't it? But I think almost at this point in time, he doesn't quite know what to do. And he's he's retreating into fantasy for answers. But also, I think he's perhaps aware of, of how powerful that narrative is is and perhaps that people would assume that he's not mentally competent if he's saying this kind of thing. So it depends on, on how much he, he really knows about about intention, about proof around murder. I think you're giving him too much sophistication. I think this is much more uh, schoolboy, it wasn't me, Gov, it was him, just simply to divert the attention. But he I keeps... don't think it was a sense of him planning an excuse or a defence. I think simply it was a knee-jerk response. It wasn't me, it was somebody else. But, suppose... if it, but, but it wasn't just to pull you up there, Mike, but I mean, if, if this was a knee-jerk reaction, then how come he had so much information to hand to give to the police about this fictional character, Dan Tress, about where yeah. they met, apparently they met at a karate club and so on. So he created this entire, you know, separate world around Dan Tress. That wasn't something he just invented on the spot. Why not? Well, I think it's a lot of too, nearly too much information, Liz. No, no, I think you, you can make up stories quite easily if you've got a structure to it. And he, he already made Dan a character. He had an image of Dan. He had an image of Sin and people like that in his head. And I think it's quite easy to make up a story as you go along. Where you make the mistakes is it's not having consistency in the story. And the police would have listened to him and realised the inconsistencies, which he wouldn't have been able to hide. I think what's going on here is that, that he's in a difficult situation, so the first thing he does is reach into his fantasy world. Does he actually believe at this stage, as some people do, that and eventually or comes to believe that Dan Tress is the actual killer? No, no. He knows exactly what he's done. He knows that it's wrong. He knows he's responsible for it. I think now he's just panicking. 
The police quickly, as we now know, saw through these lies. And thanks to a combination of forensic digital evidence, CCTV footage and evidence taken from Bushby's computer, he was charged with murder. He was found guilty and sentenced to life with a minimum of 25 years to serve. Now, this being your forte, Liz, it strikes me that this murder with the role of social media and those fake aliases, those fictitious friends, this murder could not have taken place outside of the realm of social media. I think for, for me, Tony Bushby is is what I would call a fantasist. He's somebody who's used social media to maintain a fantasy because he essentially doesn't feel that he is enough of a, an interesting person, enough of an appealing person to get the things that he wants. So he uses the internet to orchestrate these these other elements of himself and, and other people to, to make himself appeal. But this is the kind of archetypal kind of nightmare that parents think about teenagers and the dangers that social media can put them into. Yeah. But as your granny would tell you when you were young, if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't true. And I think we've got to say to the teenagers today, if something comes across as too good to be true, be wary of it. Yep. Don't believe everything you see or hear on the internet, because a lot of it is lies. Yeah, but I, I think in this case, just, I mean, in, in Katie's defence, to paint the real picture is that she was nearly kind of, it was nearly impossible for her to offer a defence, a social media defence against the, the weaponization of social media by Bushby with all these fictitious mm. characters. You know, and I mean, I mean, she wasn't being that naive. And what we've got going on here, it's not a case of this is a guy that she's met on the internet that she knows nothing about. This is somebody that she's she knows at college, so she mm. knows him in a face-to-face situation, and the, the relationship they have on social media is layered over that. And often when we look at, at teenagers who become the victims of murder and, and social media is in there somewhere, it's, it's often because they have been groomed, they've been lured by somebody claiming to be someone they're not on social media. But here mm. we've got something a bit different. How can parents protect their kids on social media from fantasists, as you say, Liz, like Tony Bushby and also from other predators? I don't think you can in in reality. You can say to your children, look, these people exist and do be cynical of everything that people say. But this guy was so orchestrated in the way he dealt with it that people wouldn't realise what was happening. And the problem is we don't know about these things until they happen. And then we can say to people or children or teenagers, look, these things have happened in the past, be aware of it. But the other problem is he didn't have any red flags. There's nothing until he actually committed the brutal murder to indicate that this guy was going to murder. The concerning element for me started to kick in when I was reading about this case was when Bushby was encouraging Katie to to keep the relationship secret. They were keeping it under wraps. That was when the alarm bell started ringing for me because when you're trying to kind of isolate somebody from their family and their friends, that's a real red flag in terms of coercive control, in terms of domestic abuse. So we need to educate young people more about the warning signs in those types of relationships. Well, thank you to my guests, Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and forensic clinical psychologist Mike Berry. And of course, you can watch the full documentary of Click for Murder, Tony Bushby on CBS Reality. From me, Donald McIntyre, for now, goodbye. Goodbye.